So what was the failure under the Adamic covenant? If it was an unconditional covenant, how is it that there needed to be another covenant after it? Um, if man couldn't technically fail under it, um, why was it replaced? Well, uh, this man, Henry Morris, has this to say about um, the time of Noah and his purposes. It says, the first age of human history was brought to its climax and culmination in the days of Noah. The sin disease, which began so in innocuously when Eve was tempted to doubt the word of God, which then began to show its true ugliness of character in the life of Cain, which came to maturity in the godless civilization developed by his descendants, finally descended into such a terrible morass of wickedness and corruption that only a global bath of water from the windows of heaven could purge and cleanse the fevered earth. The characteristics of those awful and tragic days, strange as they may seem to our unenlightened culture today, or unlightened culture today, are nevertheless to be repeated in the last days of this present age. It is urgently important from the standpoint of both understanding past history and seeking guidance for the future that we understand the events which took place in the days of Noah. Um, let's see. Yeah, I'm going to do this. And then I forgot to introduce why we're doing the foundations. So I'll uh, speak a little to that after I get through this bit. Uh, we see that Jesus Christ himself uh, spoke of the last days in terms of the judgment um, which Noah endured uh, in the antediluvian world. So in Matthew 24, 37 through 39, this is from the Olivet Discourse in which Christ's disciples asked him, uh, what will be the signs of your sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And Christ's long answer to them um, gives them basically a future for the, uh, the people of Israel, what they're to expect, uh, their returning Messiah, because Christ is about to um, ascend into heaven, and the world will be dominated by the age of the church. They're asking him, well, what will be the sign of your return? They understood that he was coming back, and they understood that that return would be uh, in tandem with the end of the age. Um, so Christ's answer to them in part was, for the coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark. And they did not understand until the flood came and took them all away. So will be the coming, or so will the coming of the Son of Man be. Uh, so Jesus looks at this judgment on Noah as similar to the judgment that is coming, um, and that judgment specifically that we're studying in the book of Revelation. Uh, Peter also speaks of uh, the end of the age in the terms of uh, the Noahic flood. He says, for this, or know this first of all, that in the last days mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, means died, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. For when they maintain this, it escapes their notice that by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and by water through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. So skeptics come and say that since the beginning of creation, 
there has been no major cosmological change. Uh, thus, we shouldn't anticipate one in the future. Well, this, uh, Peter's argument is basically, um, they totally missed that the flood changed everything about the earth. Um, I just took a lovely trip through the canyon lands of Arizona, Utah, and um, it's, it's easy to see the power um, behind the flood, that it changed everything about this world. Uh, the, the canyons and looking at the Grand Canyon, that's probably, uh, well, I, I heard it said once that if you expanded a, like a metal marble out to the size of the earth, it would be riddled with canyons uh, larger than the Grand Canyon. Uh, and yet the Grand Canyon to us is so massive. The earth itself is actually pretty smooth. Um, but when you get down into our perspective, this Grand Canyon is massive. To God, it's nothing. Uh, but to us, um, it, it's something to behold, isn't it? Uh, okay, we've got another question here. Riddles or marbles? Marbles. Uh, metal marble. Because I guess glass marbles maybe don't have cracks in them. But I don't know why it was metal, but it's metal in my memory. I think that might have come from uh, Kent Hovind's creation series. I think he mentioned it there. Um, all right, let's continue to see what Peter has to say. He says, but by his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. But do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years and a thousand years is like one day. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. So Peter is framing this, um, this uh, question of basically, where is the promise of the Lord's return? We hear that constantly today. Uh, nothing has changed for 2,000 years. Well, these people back 2,000 years ago were saying nothing has changed for 2,000 years because Noah's flood uh, was about 2,300 years before their time. Um, so we're in a very similar situation here. Uh, as they were in the early church of so much time has passed and uh, it seems that God has forgotten us. Well, God is not slow um, as we count slowness, but a thousand years is like a day and a day is like a thousand years. The last 2,000 years of church history have been like two days to God. Um, he is not slow um, in bringing about his promises, uh, but he will effectuate them. Um, the purpose that Peter wrote this book to, um, to the local Jews in Jerusalem in the early church. He says, this is now, beloved, the second letter I'm writing to you in which I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder. His purpose in writing to them, specifically in writing to them about uh, what God has done, is to stir up their minds and remind them who God is. So that when they look to his promises of the future, they understand he will fulfill his future promises just as he has under, or just as he has fulfilled his past promises. Um, that you should remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets and the commandments of the Lord and Savior spoken by your apostles. All right, so really quickly then, before we jump into um, our actual text tonight. 
uh, our purpose in this foundation is to exercise literal literal interpretation um, to expose you to how this process of interpretation happens, the different viewpoints uh, that come out of other interpretations, and uh, why really the literal interpretation of scripture is the only one which dethrones the interpreter and enthrones God. Uh, we're going to be introduced to the concepts of progressive revelation. The revelation wasn't all dumped on man at one time, but that God reveals himself progressively throughout history. Uh, we're looking at the concepts of the covenants, God contracting himself with mankind in order to um, promise himself to man or also to elicit a reaction from man in stewardship um, on this earth. And we're also introduced to the concept of dispensations. That's one of those old theological words that basically just means a stewardship. Um, these are given to us in terms of a household. God is the householder. And uh, we as the servants responsible for keeping that house um, and how we act in that household is going to affect um, our fellowship with him. Uh, another purpose in doing these foundations is to introduce you to uh, some scholarly and sound and trustworthy voices on the topic, on these topics, um, both historical and modern um, exegetes, because I'm not the only source of information here. So uh, showing you where to go if you have questions. Um, first, to the scriptures, but we're looking at a lot of text here that there are a lot of different views on. So my goal is to give you guys the tools to find those interpreters who are going to be interpreting literally. Um, they're looking at the text, they're analyzing the, the grammar, and they're saying, what was the original intent of the author? Not what serves our purpose in the church, what preaches, but uh, what did the author intend to convey through their message? Because uh, the meaning behind words is not dictated by the one who receives those words, but the one who produces those words. Uh, so that's, that's my goal is to give you guys some resources. And uh, the whole foundation series is intended to develop an understanding of the theme of scripture uh, to better understand the goal and completion of history uh, which will unfold in the future during the time of revelation. Um, so that's why we're, we're taking a break every couple of months here to do a foundation so that we know where exactly is history headed? Um, where have we been and where are we going essentially? Um, all right, so with that, we go back here to Genesis 6, 1 through 4. Um, and this is um, naturally following Genesis 4 and 5, which is... Um, Genesis 4 has the sin of Cain or, uh, in murdering Abel, and then it continues with this ungodly line of Cain, and it traces him down about seven generations to this guy named Lamech, um, who has two wives. Um, so he is practicing polygamy, first of all. He has definitely forgotten um, God's mandate that man should marry one woman. Uh, but also we see him boasting um, about killing a man that no longer is he, um, like Cain was, repentant over this sin, uh, but he is rejoicing and actually invoking the name of God, that if um, God would protect Cain for the murder of Abel, 
um, he would protect me seven times, 70 times um, in this murder. And it was just a murder of, uh, I can't remember exactly, he said something that upset Lamech. It's also interesting that the first poem in scripture, uh, Lamech's uh, boast of himself is the first time we see poetry. So we see also the development of culture here where a uh, man is starting to organize himself um, apart from God and the culture imparted to man through God. Uh, and then in Genesis 5, we see the, uh, the generations from Adam to Noah. Uh, these men such as Enoch who walks with God and is taken away um, at only 365 years old. And we see the long uh, lifespan of these others. Um, but the purpose behind these long genealogies is for us to trace this promise of God, to see that God is being faithful to his promise to Adam and Eve, where he promised them a seed. He's showing that in each generation, um, he is producing a seed through the woman. And they understand that uh, the culmination of that production is going to be in the seed that will save them. Uh, when Adam and Eve, or when Eve bore her son Cain, she cried out and she says, behold, his name is Cain, for I have begotten a son with the Lord. Uh, she anticipated that this son Cain was the fulfillment of that promised seed that would crush this uh, serpent. Um, unfortunately, he turned out instead um, to be a seed of the serpent, um, that rather than serving God, he would serve um, Satan. Uh, and uh, in one of the, probably one of the most bone chilling episodes until you get to judges, um, God tells him your, your sacrifice is unacceptable. Um, I would accept a blood sacrifice. And Cain goes and he kills his brother Abel. And it's essentially putting the finger up to God and saying, you want a blood sacrifice, here you go. Um, it's your acceptable servant Abel. Um, and this is an early foreshadowing of uh, the sacrifice of Christ, that Christ's blood would be spilled uh, as a sacrifice. But God says that Abel's blood cries out to him from the ground, uh, that this blood is going to be calling for some sort of a vengeance or justice, better put. And we'll see that in the fifth seal um, in Revelation, that the martyred saints um, cry out to the throne of God for justice to be served. But that cry goes all the way back to Genesis 4. Uh, that God must bring justice to this earth. Uh, well, this conflict with the seed, um, the woman's seed and the serpent's seed, um, continues and it, it hits a fever pitch pretty early on in history. Um, Noah's flood took place about 2300 BC, um, by conservative estimate. Uh, mankind's population in the uh, 1600, 1700 years that preceded the flood of um, Noah, with the long ages of these, uh, these men and women that are producing, um, could have easily hit our current population of today before the flood of Noah. Um, so there was probably a very large population on the earth at this time, and they were becoming so incredibly corrupt that God looked at the earth and he regretted his creation. And he was only able to pull out eight 
people from this entire population um, that were able to be saved. So that's what we're looking at here in Genesis 6, is this total moral decay of the entire earth um, and how God rectifies that. So just to quick remember that the Adamic covenant, the purpose was to govern man, to protect himself from the sin in this world. Uh, and man continues in his sin. Um, so as it becomes worse and worse, more protections are going to be need to brought, be brought in um, in a Noahic covenant in order to protect man from this uh, further development of sin in the conflict with the serpent. So it says here, Genesis 6, 1 through 4, uh, Now it came about when men began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, that the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves, whomever they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with men forever, because he also is flesh. Nevertheless, this day shall be 100, or his day shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men, and they bore children to them. Those were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. Now, this is probably one of the more controversial verses or sections of scripture in the Old Testament. And uh, really, the only way for us to do it any justice is to take it literally. Uh, there is some linguistic, uh, there needs for some linguistics, like with these Nephilim, they're only mentioned two or three other times in scripture. The other time that they are mentioned is in uh, the book of Numbers, where Joshua and Caleb go into the promised land and they see giants there, and they say, oh, it's, it's a big scary land uh, with Nephilim. Uh, but here, we've not reached that progress in Revelation, but we do understand that Moses was the one writing Genesis here. Uh, so Nephilim in its Hebrew roots um, either means um, fallen or falling. Um, we might be able to um, get fallen angels out of this, uh, but it also is possible to interpret this word because, again, we don't have it described for us, um, so we have to look at, um, at its uh, Hebrew root words. Um, it could also mean those that fall on others, um, being those that dominate or conquer others. So another interpretation of what these Nephilim are is that these are powerful men who are conquering other men. Um, so rulers that are amassing power to themselves and dominating the earth. Um, the other view, of, naturally, would be that they are supernatural beings, um, the fallen angels. Uh, I think both are possible. Uh, it would be problematic that the Nephilim are existing before the flood and after the flood um, if they were fallen angels. Um, that being said, I still kind of lean towards the fallen angels view. Um, that's something I'm, I'm a little uncomfortable with in my own interpretation, but being honest with you guys, I don't have all the answers. So um, where the Bible speaks, we speak. Where the Bible does not speak, we do not speak. Um, so this is one I, I can't give you a solid answer on. But um, the uh, sons of God and the daughters of uh, men, I think I can give you a pretty good um, explanation of there are three dominant views 
Uh, one view is that the sons of God is the godly line of Seth. Um, Seth was God's replacement to Eve for Abel, um, a son that would continue this um, line to Christ, to the promised seed. Uh, so one view is the godly line of Seth began to intermingle with the ungodly line of Cain. Uh, this is a more modern view. It came out of German higher criticism. Um, it's what we would just broadly call today the liberal interpretation. Uh, in my estimation, this is a view that came about in order to erase the supernatural aspects of scripture uh, to make them more palatable for people today. Uh, but let's face it, if you've gotten this far, you've already encountered a talking snake. Uh, I, I don't think we should have any problem here with interpreting this literally. Um, there are many problems with the Cainite, Sethite view. Uh, one being that all of Cain's descendants were not women and all of um, Seth's descendants were not men. Uh, another one is that there is no specific uh, rule here given in the Adamic covenant that uh, Seth and Cain's line couldn't mix. Uh, the, the requirement on men is to the individual, not to the group, um, to conduct themselves in a godly way. And the other thing is that um, they took wives for themselves, whoever they choose. Oh, let's go to the next verse here and see what the result of this was. Oh, right there. Let me quickly give you the other two views, and then we'll move on. Um, the other view, which... Um, Walvard and Zuck. Walvard was the second um, dean of Dallas Seminary. Um, so pretty much in the camp where, where I rest uh, pretty comfortably, but I, I do disagree with him on his view of what this is. I think he's trying to bridge the gap between the liberal and conservative interpretation of this, not in the political sense, liberal and conservative, but in the interpretive sense, uh, where he says uh, that these sons of God uh, would be, uh, I guess, just natural men themselves, and the, or no, the sons of God and the daughters of men. The daughters of men would be just human women. The sons of God would also be human men, but indwelt by um, demons. This, uh, again, I just don't see any proof of it in the text. Um, I don't see anything here to indicate that demonic possession is taking place um, either before this revelation or after it. Um, so therefore, I, I'm going to rest on the um, angel's view, and I'll give you my reasons for that. Um, I believe that the sons of God mean angels and that the daughters of men mean female humans. A uh, couple of reasons for this. Uh, and this, I think I'm going to go in my weakest evidence to strongest. Uh, never in scripture do we ever see any female angels. Uh, the only angels that we ever see are male. Um, it says that angels in heaven do not reproduce, but it does not say that angels cannot reproduce. Uh, in uh, the epistles of Peter, he says that the angels of old, which left their first estate, um, are locked up in Tartarus. They committed a special type of sin. I think those are these angels which left their first abode. 
um, and corrupted themselves by corrupting uh, God's seed. We also know that these, this conflict between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent, uh, it, is, it, it makes the promise of God of no effect if that seed cannot be reproduced. If Satan is able to taint the entire world from God's original created order of man, then there can be no kinsman redeemer. There can be no true seed of the woman if there is no true humanity left. Um, the textual evidence for this is that in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew, the sons of God always refers to angels. This is in Job. This is in Psalms, um, where sons of God uh, means the direct creation of God. The only man that this can be said of is Adam. Adam alone is the son of God, where he is the direct creation of God. In the New Testament, in the Greek, sons of God can refer to the believer but it belongs to the believer in the sense that he is a new creation in Christ. He is no longer um, of the old order of men. He has a mortal body, but he is a son of God in the sense that God does not have grandchildren. God only has children. Uh, so we are the children of God, the sons of God, uh, by simple means of the new birth, that we are born in Christ. Um, so in this way, we are the direct creation of God in our new man. Uh, so neither does it contradict uh, scripture, uh, nor does it seem possible to take this in any other way than the literal sense um, of the verse. That being said, the angel's view is actually a minority opinion. Uh, most would hold, even in the conservative camp, to the liter uh, liberal interpretation of this uh, and I, I think it's, to put it in layman's terms, I think it's just wimping out. Uh, if we can't defend this, there are a lot of other things in scriptures we also can't defend, such as the resurrection of Christ. If we say this is contrary to nature and thus we cannot believe it, then when we look at the resurrection of Christ, we must say, I cannot believe that because that is contrary to nature. Uh, what we're looking at here is not only a world that is unfamiliar to us in its own uh, laws of nature, being that it is prior to the flood, um, but we're also looking at um, a time of increased and special corruption. Uh, these angels are awaiting judgment in Tartarus. Um, I think that scared angels enough not to try to do this again. Um, because that judgment, uh, the judgment that is about to come in the flood of Noah is so drastic um, that short of the need to cleanse the entire earth, uh, it would almost seem overdone. Uh, but let's look and see what C.H. McIntosh has to say. McIntosh wrote a commentary just on the Pentateuch. Uh, he, I see, he was a classical dispensationalist, um, so prior to the time of Ryrie and Dallas Seminary. And, uh, so he would have been after John Darby, uh, but before Ryrie, kind of right in the middle. He was a contemporary with men like uh, Arno Gabeline, um, who, who was the editor-in-chief of Our Hope magazine in the late 1800s, early 1900s, um, of William Kelly, 
um, who has just an incredible amount of um, writings on scripture. Well, Macintosh came out of the, um, the Darby Irish um, branch of um, open brethren from the Plymouth brethren. Um, so he is writing and they are much more concerned with ecclesiology, with church topics than they are with histories. Um, so one thing that Macintosh does is he goes through and he allegorizes a lot of Old Testament um, in order to make it applicable to the church today. Um, so he's someone you got to kind of take with a grain of salt at times, um, but he does have great insights on application. Um, so here I've got this from uh, Macintosh. He says, if the Holy Seed will not maintain its purity, all must be forfeited as regards testimony on the earth. Satan's first effort was to frustrate God's purpose by putting the holy seed to death. And when that failed, he sought to gain his end by corrupting it. Now, Macintosh takes the Sethite Cainite view, where both of these just represent godly men or, uh, or satanic men. Um, but I think he does have a really good point here that Satan's effort is always to frustrate God's purpose. So in order to understand what Satan is doing, we have to look at what God's purpose is. God's purpose is to bring about a kinsman redeemer. Uh, we understand from the book of Hebrews um, the need of Christ to cover the sins um, of, the sin, of sinful men. We understand from the Levitical priest system uh, with, or the Levitical sacrificial system the need for atonement for our sin. Uh, and so we see here that Macintosh has pulled this out of the text, that um, Satan's effort is to frustrate God's purpose in bringing about a seed who would cleanse um, the sin chasm between God and man. Uh, so his purpose is to frustrate God's purpose of Christ. And that's all the way back in the flood. He was already attempting to break that down. Uh, Henry Morris here. One reason I like Henry Morris is um, he's not theologically trained. He is basically not corrupted by the seminaries. He's not been told what to think about these passages. He is a scientist trained in climate science and um, earth and space sciences. So he's looking at this from a scientific perspective and giving a defense for the literal interpretation of Genesis, uh, something I think is definitely needed today. Uh, and what he has to say on this is he says, although scripture does teach that believers should not wed unbelievers, there is no intimation that this particular sin is unforgivable or more productive of general moral deterioration than other sins. Regardless of intellectual difficulties, it does seem clear that something beyond the normal and natural is described here in these verses. The actual phrase, bene Elohim, uh, sons of God, is used three other times, all in the very ancient book of Job. Sorry, not Psalms, I guess, just Job. Uh, there is no doubt at all that in these passages, the meaning applies exclusively to angels. A very similar form, Bar Elohim, is used in Daniel 3.25 and also refers either to an angel or to a theophany. A theophany is uh, a bodily... Uh, coming of Christ to the earth prior to um, the incarnation. 
So this is Christ appearing on earth. Um, he does this to Abraham. He does this to, um, to Joshua. He also does this um, a few other times in scripture, uh, including Daniel 3.25, where this um, Bar Elohim appears in the fiery furnace um, among Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Uh, and it says, this is a Bar Elohim, a son of God. Um, that either means an angel that appeared among the furnace with these men, or Christ himself among the furnace with these men, I mean, his pre-incarnate form. The term sons of the mighty, Bene Elim, is used in Psalm 29.1 and also in Psalm 89.6, and again refers to angels. Thus, there seems no reasonable doubt that insofar as the language itself is concerned, the intent of the writer was to convey the thought of angels. Fallen angels, no doubt, since they were acting in opposition to God's will. Um, so that's how Henry Morris interprets this passage, and I got to say I'm in complete agreement with him. Um, I see no option in the text to depart from the view of literal angels. Um, I only see doubt in the human soul and mind um, as a reason to depart from that interpretation. Uh, so what is the result of this conflict? Um, if we look at this as Satan's fallen angels uh, corrupting the purpose of God and bringing about a seed that would redeem um, the sins of man, uh, what's the result that this has? So it says, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on earth, on the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. This sounds a lot like the book of Judges. The Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. The Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, from man to animals to creeping things and to birds of the sky, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. So what's happening here is God is grieving over the state of man. Um, so we see that he is um, intimately involved in the affairs of man, that he is not a God who stands aloof, but who actually grieves over the spiritual state of man. Uh, but if you remember, the Adamic covenant that he made with man was unconditional. He has to maintain his faithfulness to that covenant to bring about this um, salvation through the seed of the woman. In other words, he has promised that he will be victorious, and he has chosen the means of a child born from a woman uh, to bring about this means. So he has, in essence, promised the continuity of mankind on the earth. He has to bring about that purpose and that end. Um, so he is grieved. He is going to blot out man from the face of the earth. But in order to be true to his promises, he is going to save a remnant, and he's going to save them uh, through an ark that he will have uh, Noah build. Uh, so this, it goes right back to uh, Genesis, um, actually, this is not Genesis 128, this is Genesis 315, uh, where it says, and I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed, so we see that conflict in Genesis 1 through 4, 6, 1 through 4. But he shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. Uh, this has not yet happened. 
and without mankind continuing on the earth, it cannot happen. Thus, God will save. Uh, so we see that uh, God often works his purpose of salvation through judgment, but he will also save a remnant from the judgment. Um, so we have these two uh, themes that go almost always in scripture, hand in hand, judgment and salvation. Uh, so we have here in Genesis 6.13, then God said to Noah, the end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. And behold, I am about to destroy them with the earth. And 6.18, but I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall enter the ark, you and your sons and your wife and your sons' wives with you. Now here, covenant, my covenant, has no antecedent. It has nothing that comes before it um, by which to interpret it, other than if we look back at the covenant with Adam that he made. So one possible reading of this text is that I will establish my covenant. I will maintain my covenant with you. I will not forget my promises made to Adam. I will bring you through this judgment. Uh, another reading of this is just the early revelation of God that after this judgment, a covenant will be cut between God and Noah. Uh, I, I almost like to look at this as both uh, rather than an either or and say that this is not only God's promise to maintain his covenant before, um, but also to establish a covenant with Noah in an amplification of that covenant. Um, normally, we look at something like this, my covenant, and say it can only have one interpretation. And I think that my view on this is consistent with that principle of everything has one interpretation, um, because I think it's speaking of God's faithfulness to man, because the covenant with Adam was not called explicitly a covenant. Uh, this, my covenant, is going to naturally refer to the covenant that comes later with Noah, but God is using this terminology covenant with Noah uh, to show Noah that he will be faithful to him. Uh, so it says, then the Lord said to Noah, enter the ark, you and all your household, for you alone I have seen to be righteous before me in this time. Um, so we see that this approaching God in righteousness, approaching him um, on his terms, uh, is the reason that Noah was deemed uh, righteous enough to be saved. Um, in other words, he wasn't a lost cause. The rest of the earth God judged was a lost cause. And we see, uh, basically, we, we get to see what God saw in him. Um, through his actions, God would have been looking at Noah's heart, but God understood Noah's heart to see that Noah would have a faith response. Um, so it says, thus Noah did according to all that God had commanded him, so he did. Um, Noah did according to all that the Lord had commanded him. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took every clean animal and every clean bird and offered a burnt offering on the altar. Noah is not only approaching God through sacrifice, the way that God had taught them since Adam um, to approach him um, in, in their sin, that uh, something must die in order for them to approach God. This is early Genesis teaching them um, to recognize the necessity of a kinsman redeemer. Um, 
the seed would need to die in order to cleanse man of his sins. But also, uh, every time God gave Noah a command, um, Moses is faithful to record for us that Noah did exactly as God commanded. And some of these commands um, given to Noah lasted 100 years. Um, and it says that Noah was faithful, and this word faithful um, has the, or um, this did, has this idea that he continued in faithfulness for these hundred years, um, that Noah was faithful uh, to preach that the end was coming by a flood, um, to build the ark that would protect him, and to enter into the ark. Uh, uh, so what was this failure under the Adamic covenant? It was uh, that man uh, did not approach God in the way that God intended or um, commanded that he be approached. Uh, just like I read to you from Leviticus, that by those who come near me, I will be treated as holy. Uh, men like Lamech um, in the end of Genesis 4 um, invoked the name of God but did not um, do so on God's terms. He was not treating God as holy. Uh, the promise of God to bring about a seed of the woman uh, was becoming corrupt on the earth uh, by the intermingling with an angelic uh, host. And uh, in other words, man was forgetting God. Um, and we see that as a theme throughout Genesis 1 through 11, that man is quick to forget God. Um, but here, the failure under the Edemic covenant came pretty quickly, just like the failure under the um, Edenic covenant. And uh, this is God speaking to Cain. He says, if you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door, and its desire is for you. But you must master it. Cain told Abel, his brother, and it came about, and they were in the field, that Cain rose up against Abel, his brother, and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? And he said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? He said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. Now you are cursed from the ground, which is opened in its mouth which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. Uh, this is often the result of sin. Uh, when Adam and Eve sinned, Adam hid himself from God. Uh, Adam very quickly forgot the attributes of God. He forgot that God is omnipresent, that he can't hide from him. And uh, God played along long enough to show Adam um, his own sinfulness. Uh, so Adam essentially began to create his own theology as soon as he sinned um, in lying to himself, denying the, his own reality by saying to himself, oh, I'll hide behind this bush. That's good enough to hide me from God. I'll cover myself in the work of my own hands in these um, branches, and that's good enough to cover me. And God says, no, it's not. Well, here, God asks Cain, offering him the, uh, the ability to confess his sin. He says, where is your brother? And uh, Cain says to him, I don't know. Well, do you think God believes him here? Cain has created his own theology that he can hide information from God. This is information that God already has. He is not asking uh, for his own 
knowledge. He's asking uh, to give Cain an opportunity to repent here. Um, and then he has a spiteful response as well. Am I my brother's keeper? Uh, well, no, he's not his brother's keeper, but um, he's also not the one able to take the life of his brother. Um, he has now come closer than Adam ever did in uh, hubris, in thinking that he is capable of occupying God's position, uh, where Adam thought it was right for him to choose between right and wrong. Uh, here, Abel thinks it's right for him to choose between life and death. Uh, so I think that was the progressive failure under the Adamic covenant that man, men is, are not only forgetting who God is, they are creating for themselves gods of their own and um, walking progressively further away from God and who he is.